Philippians chapter 4 this morning. <clears throat> Excuse me. We're going to be looking at verses 8 and 9 today. I came across an article this week on a, on a website that focuses on design. Um, I'm always intrigued. I love considering good design. And this, this article captured my attention. It said, how highway signs became a rare beacon of American unity. <clears throat> it writes, driving across America today, you will encounter a dizzying variety of cultures, landscapes, people, and animals. But the one consistent thing that, you, that will stay the same from Maine to California are the signs you pass on the highway. And that is because America's roads and highways have a big, fat style guide. First published in 1935, the Federal Highway Administration's Manual on Uniform Traffic Control, which consists of a hefty 900 pages, contains the standards for all traffic safety signs and roadway markings. It gives ex exact specifications for font size, spacing of letters, background colors, reflectivity, mounting locations, and orientation to help ensure that traffic signs are consistently readable at a glance while driving everywhere in the U.S. The word uniform is key here. As you can only imagine, the chaos if each state had its own version of stop signs and safety warnings. I mean, we can kind of just imagine the chaos there. You're traveling over to Wisconsin or down to Iowa, and you, you cross the state lines, and everything starts looking different, right? The stop signs are blue. Highway road sign is red. Some weird cursive font that's barely readable is there for your exit. You can't even read it. You don't know what to do in the moment that you're needing to. Green doesn't mean go, but it means stop. I mean, you can continue on. But because of this consistency, the, the uniform standard that they must submit to, these signs give clear indi indication of what we should do and where we should go. Result peaceable driving from one state to another. Or, if it wasn't, there would certainly be chaos. So what to think when I come to an intersection and then what to do next is helped by this consistent form. And as I read this article, my mind connected to these, these verses we're going to look at today. Paul's encouragement for these, these beloved saints, for these, these friends. He, he loves them. He is a good pastor and and we're coming towards this end of his letter, and, and he, rather than them living in misdirection or chaos in this little church, he, he wants them to live unified, a church moving in the right direction, uh, united in their hope and their contented joy in Jesus, weathering opposition from without and having radical, joyful, loving unity from the gospel together within. And he's been offering and setting up the standard of which all examples flow from, and that is his son, Jesus, to shape their thinking and to shape their living. He's holding up Jesus as the ultimate example, and we've also seen leaders being held up as well, including himself, and we're going to see that again this morning in our text so that they could live and think in the good of the gospel. So let's read Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, and we'll pray. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. 
what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Would you join me as we pray? Lord, thank you for your word this morning that we get to come to by faith with the power of the Spirit, uh, the, the Spirit that helped Paul pin these and to those initial recipients of this letter to, to help transform their life. And Lord, we want to come here this morning and leave not just checking a box of Sunday attendance to hear another sermon, Lord, but we want, we want you to work in us. We want you to change us. We want to think as you would want us to think and live as you would have us think through the power of your Son, Jesus. So come, Spirit, and would you do that in us and upon us by your power through your word this morning. Amen. Amen. So as we know, Paul's been encouraging these saints he loves to walk worthily of the gospel as citizens of his kingdom. See that in earlier in chapter in, earlier into chapters side by side, one in the gospel, the gospel that has saved them, the gospel that is uniting them, and now is outworking in their life, observable in their joy, in their love, in their humility, in their contentedness. And these these things they believe, these truths they have heard and believed on are also things that Paul is, is encouraging them and wanting them to live out of. It, it's to, those truths are supposed to move them somewhere, in a particular direction, a destination in the Lord. Gordon Fee summarizes these verses like this. In effect, this sentence summarizes as well as concludes the letter. Paul's concern throughout has been the gospel. Not its content, doctrinal error is not an issue, but it's lived out expression in the world. And, that, and we're just honest with our own heart. We, we could just say, yep, I can, I can know a lot up here, but getting it out in my life, that's a whole nother thing. And Paul has been working and laboring for their joy because they know their greater joy is going to be not just knowing something, but living it out. Lived out expression in the world. Both what they think and believe and how, they, how that gets lived out. They've got to go together. They've got to go together. So where their minds and hearts go internally, our lives should go externally. And that's, so that's what we're going to see this morning. As we trust and follow Christ, He is to determine both how we think and how we live with the promise of His peace as we do. So we're just going to allow those, these two commands we're going to see here to kind of shape our, our outline and two points, how we think and how we live with this promise. So let's begin with this, this Christ-shaped thinking. Now, before we go into verses 8 and 9, I want us to rewind a little bit and look at verses 4 and 7 that Andrew did a wonderful job drawing our attention to last week. Because those texts, those verses flow into verses 8 and 9. They're not detached. We'll see a parallel in their structure. So what did we see last week? We saw these commands. We saw rejoicing. You were called to rejoice always, to be gentle, let your reasonableness be known to all. To not be anxious about anything, but in everything, with prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and then this peace would guard their hearts and minds. So, rejoicing always, come in faith, trust in Him, radical, this radical promise of His nearness, His imminent return, as well as His present presence there, and through prayerful petition with thanksgiving, resting in the sovereign goodness of his, of his care, we can turn our anxious hearts towards trust in Him 
and our hearts and minds are guarded, are, are garrisoned around with a promise of Christ, being in Christ, Christ being with us, and our hearts and mind are kept in His peace. So the result of doing something, His peace is keeping us. We're experiencing His peace. Now see the parallel now here in verse 8 and 9. There, there is something we need to do. There is a call here, a command. Think on, dwell on, ponder on something, and practice something, do, with a promised result of the God of peace being with us. So, from verse 7, we have this supernatural work of God. Follow me. Our, our mind, our hearts in Jesus. We're being garrisoned by His peace. And now there's this divine enabling of our hearts and minds to do something, uh, do something that we wouldn't otherwise be able to do. This, this unsurpassing power to keep us, right? What, what, is, what does He say? It says the, that you would know the... <clears throat> The peace of God that would come to us that, that surpasses all understanding, meaning this, this shouldn't be right, this shouldn't work, but it does. His divine power comes and then gives us direct, a direction for our hearts, a direction for our minds to dwell on and do something in a specific direction. And so that's why Paul says, finally, or, or regarding what remains, brothers and sisters, I want you to think on certain things. God's peace has come and enabled you to do something, to think and do something, and He wants you to think on certain things. This word means to reckon or to take an account of or have focused consideration on something. So it's not just data in our brain, but to, to give our hearts and minds to dwell on something that has been freed from anxious slavery, freed into the peace of God. Now let your hearts be given to something, these things. What, what are these things that we should ponder on. He gives us six whatevers. Whatever is true. Whatever is true. Whatever is truthful. Not deceptive, but truthful. Whatever is honorable. Those things that are noble. The things that are worthy of respect. Whatever is just. Those things that are right. The, the, the things that align with justice and righteousness. Whatever is pure. Those things that are holy like God. Not tainted, but full of light and purity. Whatever is lovely, that, that which is beautiful. Whatever is commendable, admirable. Something I want to share is something I'm going to recommend. Whatever is commendable and admirable. Think on these things. And as if Paul can't list every virtue, he follows this up. He says, if there is anything, excellence, anything of, that is of virtue, that is virtuous, if there's anything praiseworthy, worthy of praise, think on on those things, these things. So not an exhaustive list, but giving us a picture of things that should be present. That grace of God frees our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus to do. Now, at times, we can, we can get insight into something by considering the reversal of that, right? Kind of like when you go to a jeweler and they lay that black felt mat out and then they put the diamond on that, that that stark contrast helps us capture the truth of that thing we're, we're looking at. So sometimes I just like to make, make an anti-verse of, of what the verse is, just to kind of help us feel that. So maybe we would read the anti-verse of verse 8 could read something like this. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is false and deceptive and is a lie, whatever is dishonorable and repulsive, whatever is unjust and unethical, whatever is impure and perverted, 
whatever is ugly and detestable, whatever is despicable and foul, if there's anything corrupt, if there's anything disgraceful, think on those things. Dwell on those things. Ponder on those things. Now, consider the output of that kind of dwelling and thinking. Nothing good. Anything but good. Now, keep in view our connections where Paul has gone in this letter regarding community and relationships and unity and fear and anxiety. If the things that my mind and heart dwell on are false, untruths about myself and about God and about my circumstances, and I rehearse on those things, I dwell on those things, what I, I think on what is unjust or unfair or distorted about those realities, how often would I be easily drawn into a pit of anxiety and worry and fear? If I've dwelt on these things, that would only lead to, to chaos and brokenness and disunity, meaning I stew over my mind negative, critical thoughts about myself or others. What kind of damage would that lead to in community? If I'm given to thinking and speaking untruthful things about others, ungraceful things about others, and I'm drawing attention to unworthy things that I observe in others, and I slander and gossip about those things, even in the tiniest way, Imagine the brokenness that that leads to in community. Or consider purity, just sexual purity in itself. If my mind is permitted to live and ponder and dwell and permit thoughts in my heart and in my thoughts of sexual impurity, what will this bring in the destruction of relationships in homes, marriages, in God's community? But positively, positively is Paul is charging them, if the church community is saturated in thinking good, lovely, commendable, pure things about the Lord and about others, and quickly able to notice those things and share those things, wow, what a force that has in God's community. What, what a protection, right? Remember this garrison reality that happens in our heart and our mind with the peace of God? Imagine the, the garrison that happens in God's community when these are the virtues saturating the thoughts in the hearts of God's people. No, we're not going to allow that to come in here. No, that's not going to be in my heart. No, I'm not going to let this into my community. And God's grace, the God, His grace empowers us to, to think and to see these things that we wouldn't otherwise in our sin but through the gospel we can. I'm quick, more quickly to observe that is, what, that is praiseworthy. And I want to draw attention to that. I want to celebrate that. I want to give thanks to that in prayer and before others. But the question will come, what will define what is virtuous and honorable and pure and commendable? What defines what is lovely and beautiful? I mean, Paul uses these words. Why these specific words? You know, we talk about art, and it, we use that reference that it is an eye of the beholder that considers something beautiful or not. I came across an image of an art exhibit piece on display recently. It was a banana taped to a white wall with, held on there with a strip of gray duct tape. It sold for $120,000. Is that art? I... I I, I don't know, maybe somebody found that valuable and commendable. But that which is virtuous and praiseworthy cannot ultimately originate from within ourselves or our culture around us. 
There's, some, there's something objective outside of us that has to define that, and we know that is our Creator. God must define this. And we, are, we know that in the world, sin takes good things of God and distorts them. Ugly things are told are beautiful. Those things that God's design is, says are beautiful distorts to make them ugly. It's, and it's interesting, as Paul's list here, these virtues were, were words that were found in, at that time in common in the Greco-Roman culture. Pagan thinkers, Plato, the Stoics, they held up certain virtues that even are in this list. <clears throat> but this is just, be, to me, a sign of God's common grace to the world, which means that God's grace is His blessing on His created uh, his created world and image bearers that we can experience, even if we're unsaved, God's common grace, celebrating certain things like justice and beauty and integrity, even though we do not know God. It's God's kindness. But the difference is, is the world isn't defining that standard. God's defining that standard in His grace. So certain virtues may be held up in our society in God's common grace through image bearers that something like that we may pursue justice for the oppressed. We should want this. Child labor laws to protect children from being abused and taken advantage of are right and good. We applaud the work, that work. We should fight for that along with those who are unbelievers. But a fight for justice to permit and promote child gender medical transitioning is a totally different thing. If the world applauds that or our state applauds that, it is something we can't applaud because it's not guided by the standards of which we find in God, the Creator. Yet sadly, this command in Philippian, who is this written to? God's people. This is is written to some believers that Paul's trying to draw their hearts to remember these things. Think on these things because the the reality is we will drift from these things in our stealth. We can go astray. The prophet Isaiah spoke to God's people as God looked on Israel, His people, who he expected in his covenant purity and justice. And it says he looked down for justice and behold, he saw bloodshed. This is what the prophet spoke in Isaiah 5. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight calling good evil, calling evil good. We, we live, church, in a day where we need discernment that comes from God's Word by the Spirit to recognize that. The world is not going to uphold those things for us and to teach us those things. And woe, woe to us to experience God's woe if we don't. This is a call for us saints to be discerning Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. We need God's help. The human heart seeks autonomy, discovering who we are, what is right, and what is pure. It's all the way back into the garden. What is beautiful? What is evil? What is good in our own eyes? And apart from God, we we won't see. We won't know what is virtuous and good and right and beautiful. And if we do turn away from His design, pain and brokenness come Lack of peace and chaos will ensue. So God authors all that is beautiful, all that is lovely, all that is pure, all that is true and just. And God reveals this to us through the Spirit, by His Word, 
in his son, Jesus. And this becomes the standard of all things by which we shape our hearts, our thoughts, and our lives, instructing us through Scripture, his character revealed in his son, Jesus. And I, and I love that God placed the Christ hymn right in the center of this letter for us and for those Philippian believers to grasp the, their hearts and their, their minds to what is most beautiful and good. And that is the gospel of his son, Jesus. He prayed, Paul prayed that they'd abound in love and all knowledge and discernment. Chapter 1, verse 9. Paul wants them to have the mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ. A Christ-shaped mind. Romans 12.1 tells us that we do need help to not be conformed to the world's standards and ways of what is virtuous and good and wise, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind through the gospel of Jesus. Romans 12.1. So, church, Christian allegiance as citizens of heaven, we seek God's standard of what this looks like. Not Rome, not Minnesota, not America, but our thinking, our believing, the things that would capture our mind, our thoughts, need to be shaped by God's Word through the gospel of His Son, Jesus. God's ways, God's thoughts. It's, it has been said that we are to aim to be thinking God's thoughts after Him. This is what our, our goal is, thinking His thoughts after Him. And these virtues don't come as a uh, the list. We can't see this list as just be good, be nice people. No, it is, it is Christ formed in us. This is what Paul wanted. He wanted to know Christ. He wanted to become like Christ in his suffering and know his resurrection. He wants the Philippian believers to be conformed to Christ. Alex Motier says this, just as a carnal mind is the surest passport to the downward path, so a mind drilled in the things of which God approves is the steadiest way into practical holiness. This is what Paul wanted, practical holiness in this body of believers. Let our minds be drilled, filled with, renewed with God's thoughts to shape our living. And this is, this is Paul's hope. This is where he's hammering the, in this next point, this command to them, to not simply have cognitive exercise, but a transformed mind and heart so that it would be transformed lives. Let's look at verse 9. He says this, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. He says, practice these things. Do, do these things. Do is a part of the gospel, meaning the gospel comes to us by, by God's grace and we believe through faith in what he's done. We don't earn that, but once we believe and trust in Him, our life then responds to a life of obedience, a do. We heard in chapter 2, church tells them, church, you have obeyed, you've obeyed, you've been doing, so keep at it. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Followed by do all things without grumbling or disputing. We, we know this. This is, this is a call for us to, to do and to practice. And Paul, and Paul helps them connect the dots by telling them that this is stuff that they've learned and received and heard and seen. These 
four descriptive verbs. They've learned and they've received something. What have they learned and received? Well, they've learned to receive the, the gospel message. We, we see the same words in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. He put it this way, Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you have received and which you stand and by which you are being saved, for I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received. So Paul received the good news of the gospel. He learned of it. He trusted. He believed. Then he went and preached. And the Corinthian church and the Philippians likewise have received and believed and trusted in the gospel. And he's saying, now practice as a response to this transforming power that has come in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And these things, what are these things? It points back to his list of virtues, all these fruits of the life that come from following Jesus. Having Jesus' righteousness by faith, not earned, Christ in them by the Spirit, it empowers them to live in such a way that they pursue purity and a life that is praiseworthy, a life that walks in truth, that, walk, that embraces humility. And so, no longer slaves to sin, but now slaves to righteousness, they can now pursue an obedient life. So good news they received, but also good news that they believed and responded to, but they've seen as an example in others. They saw this in Paul. Look at Paul saying, this is something you, you learned and received, and it is something you heard and you have seen. They've observed this in Paul. Paul was there with them. And they watched his life. They observed, this, is, this isn't just a message this guy has. This guy actually lives what he believes and is preaching. He was put in prison in that town. He is now suffering in Rome as he writes this letter, possibly awaiting execution. They, they had a tangible, visual observation of the gospel at work in this man's life. He commended himself and others in chapter 3. Brothers, join in Im imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So imitate me, other examples, Timothy, Epaphroditus, local leaders. These are people he wants them to follow. They modeled not perfectly the gospel, but they were things that were true and lovely and pure and commendable and honorable, Christ-like character in them, observations that helped them grow as well. There is a, a, a wonderful power that comes in, I think, God's design of discipleship, like Jesus, who calls disciples to himself and says, come with me, watch my life, follow me, do like me. And that is what is present in God's church as well. Embodied, side by side, watch and do together. We put in practice this stuff together. We, we do not live and we cannot live the Christian life in isolation or in virtual, some virtual context, but connected to God's people. Tangible relationships where we experience God's grace in and through the things that have felt, that are seen, that we witness, that we need as examples, that we, others encourage us in. So what is felt and seen? Well, it's humility. We see others not looking at their own interests, but the interests of others. I'm so glad I get to look around this room and I see God's grace at work in you in that looking to others' interests other than your own. Seen in turning, grumbling, and complaining to content and thanksgiving joy. When you see that in somebody, when you know that there's something that somebody would be quote-unquote justified in complaining and grumbling about, but there's contented joy, that is a beautiful example 
that encourages us. It is seen in those suffering with hope for Jesus' sake. We're blessed when we see it. We're blessed when we experience that. We give thanks, and it, it motivates us together to go somewhere in Jesus, to practice those things that we believe and we profess. So we foremost fix our eyes on Jesus, the scriptures, examples that we find in them, like the apostles. God gives us leaders and brothers and sisters in our life, helping us as examples, calling us forward in Jesus, a multiplicity of relationships. But this, this calls for us to be known. We must know others, and they must, they must know us. A pastor shared a story with me that came to my mind this week. He uh, was just communicating how he had this very high assessment of himself on how awesome and engaged he was at dinner time in discussion with his family and his kids. And so just to evaluate how high his assessment was, he, he did an activity. He, he asked his kids to pretend that you were dad. And what does he look like at dinner time? Pretend you are me and just act like that. Well, the son leaned over to his plate or bowl and he just head down, began to eat and didn't look up and didn't say a word. <laughs> He's like, that's what dad looks like? He's like, yeah, this is what you look like, dad, right? It was exposing for him and it was a humbling moment. He just like, you know what? My assessment of myself was, was not accurate and I needed help to see that. It is so necessary for us to have eyes of others for the care of our soul, for the encouragement of us, when it comes to growing in these areas, these virtues that God has called us to just, not just think, but to live. Because we could think them all day, but we want to be able to live them well. So the things we can't see, God helps us through relationships, brothers and sisters in our discipling to help us think the things we should, to practice the things we should. And this, this requires Christ's love loving, shaped thoughts and hearts to help us serve one another. So when, we're, when we are giving our mind and thoughts to these things, when we're giving our life to practice these things, these two commands, there, here's this promise that follows, this, this conclusion of a promise. There is this condition that, that comes and then a promise with that. When we, we Remember, we, just, we don't earn any of this. We don't earn God's love. We don't earn salvation. We don't earn that whatsoever, but there is this reality. If, if we give our minds to these things that we believe and we dwell on them and it transforms our thinking and then we're giving our life to live these things as well, that there will be a result. Notice the and in verse 7 and verse 9. So rejoice always, move in prayerful trust and faith towards God with your anxieties and the peace of God will guard your hearts and mind in Christ. And think and dwell on certain things and practice certain things and the God of peace will be with you. Things we believe and dwell on and the things we do in practice can hinder or increase our peace in God and our experience of it. This is the truth. To dwell on Christ, to, to, to live in walk in Christ's ways will result in a greater peace in our life. Christ was Paul's treasure. He was, his, all, all life was rubbish compared to knowing him. All other gains in contrast were, were nothing. He, he knew 
Jesus, the one who determines and distinguishes all values and all worths, was the one he needed and most desired. And Jesus, who is a summary of all that is good and pure and lovely and good and true, and he desires to know him, he knows when he lays hold of Christ and he gains Christ, he, he also gains more of the peace of God in his life. There's a, a rest and a confidence because more of Christ's reign is in him. More of Christ's kingdom is what's surrounding and determining what his life is all about. And in the gospel, God in his mercy makes a way and opens us a way to know this peace. Because he's the God of peace. And the God of peace is inviting us into greater measures of his peace by inviting us into his thinking and his ways. Hebrews puts it this way. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Who, who, who is he? He is the God of peace. Not the God of, of chaos, but the God of peace. Not the God of impurity, but the God of purity. Not the God of injustice, but the God of justice. This God of peace comes. He comes who by his son Jesus, the Prince of Peace, came and gave his life and his love to equip his saints, to invite his saints into his grace and his power to do his will, to practice his will to, that was working in us by his grace, that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus. And by that, we experience more of his peace. More of his peace in our life personally and in God's church in community. Walter Hansen writes this, Through the Messiah, God will bring the condition of peace, reconciliation with God, and harmony in all relationships. Peace is not so a subjective tranquility as an objective reality created by the reign through Messiah. The promise of God's presence assures the church that God, the source and sustainer of peace, will lead them to experience the reality of reconciliation with God and with one another. The God of peace will bring good order and harmony in their community, worship of God in their life together. This was Paul's heart for them. This is, this is God's desire for us. God wants his church to experience the objective reality created by the reign of Jesus more and more in our hearts. And the more and more that that shapes our thinking and our believing in our heart, the more that that shapes and works its way out in our living in with people, God will help us experience more worship with him and more faithful beauty in our relationships. God doesn't want us in ditches, falling off and careening into the roads. He doesn't want us to hit intersections. We're just in collision with others. He wants peace for us as we navigate this world and navigate life. As our article referenced earlier, as we sort of drive around in this world around us, we're going to encounter a dizzying variety of cultures. We could reinterpret this as believers. We will encounter a dizzying variety of tests and trials and people and sufferings and differences and testings and conflicts. And we need something, a standard to shape 
our life after. We need something to organize and to make sense and to fix our attention on. Our thinking, our minds and hearts, and our practice and behaviors so that peace will reign and guard us. And this comes through His Son, Jesus Christ. So church, let, let's take our thoughts, the things that we're, when we're just by ourselves and the, where our mind would drift to when nothing else is going on, and let's, let's continue to align them consistently with the gospel of Jesus Christ, with His Word. The things that are inconsistent with that, let's, let's repent of them. Let's, let's turn from that which doesn't align with the gospel. Let's take our life and behaviors and actions and line them according and consistent to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And those things that aren't there, we can turn, we can repent, and we can move towards that which is faithful in Jesus. So a life in sync with the gospel, hearts and thoughts in sync with the gospel, the Lord's promise for more joy of our hearts and more joy for God's church and His people. Unified in Jesus in His life, in His love, and more of His peace pouring out upon our hearts, more of His peace spilling out of our life towards our brothers and sisters, and this is for His great glory, and this is for our good and our joy. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank You. Thank You for this this reconciling work You've done in Your your Son, Jesus, to Give us peace with God and a promise of harmony and peace with God's people. Lord, our, our minds, our thoughts, our hearts, Lord, we, we want them, Lord, to, to, to find a, a sinking up with who you are, Jesus, to think your thoughts after you. And we need, we need your help to do that, Lord. We need your power to do that. The, the amount of information and things that we are told on a, a daily basis that comes at us from, from our own mind, our own heart, to, to the things in, compounded around us in the world, to think something other than what is virtuous and good and beautiful and just, Lord, and commendable, Lord. We, we need your help to to shape our thoughts and our hearts, Lord. We need your word. We need your spirit. We need the gospel of your son, Jesus, to come and help us, Lord. And we, and we need others to help us remember. <laughs> and and when, when, we, when our thoughts do careen off to help us guide our attention back to you. And Lord, we need our, our life to be shaped by your gospel, the, the practicing of these things. Thank you for being our perfect example, Jesus. And the one who brings grace and mercy when we fail to do that, but the one who also by your grace and power enables us to do so. Lord, let cross of grace continue to be shaped by your peace, the peace of God, so that the world could see as well, Lord, your your glory in your son Jesus. Amen. Amen.